Hi, this is Nathan Owens from the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse in Antigua. Every Tuesday evening at 7.30, we have a live call-in program discussing real-life issues from the Caribbean. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. You're listening to That's Truth, a live call-in program with Dr. David Murphy, designed to answer your questions biblically in this confusing culture. Dr. Murphy has over 30 years of counseling and ministry experience here in the Caribbean and is ready to answer your questions according to truth. Good evening and welcome to another live episode of That's Truth here on the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. I'm Nathan Owens. Sitting across the desk from me as usual is Pastor Murphy. Good evening, Pastor. Uh, Good evening, Brother Nathan, and good evening to those who listen to the program. Thank you so much for allowing us to come into your home this evening. And we not only have as an option for you to interact on the program tonight, we desire and we look forward to your interaction. No matter how you are joining us tonight, We are honored that you have taken time out of your busy Tuesday evening schedule in order to interact with us and to listen to the program tonight. Before we jump into new material tonight, Pastor, we have a question that's come in since our last episode. It's uh, coming from the Southern Caribbean, and it says, I have a question. How do you become an excellent communicator? Well, I'm not too sure how you you accomplish that. Um, I could just share some thoughts with you. Um, I think one of the key things is that you have to practice speaking. Uh, if you want to be a communicator, uh, that is a basic essential. So you're going to have to talk to your friends, talk to family. Uh, I think that's a, a given. The other thing I would say to you, you have to do extensive reading. It's very difficult to communicate effectively if you don't have a wide body of subjects you can talk about and what people are um, want to relate to in terms of what is relevant or what is appropriate. Third thing is you must have some kind of research skills. Whether you can use the internet or Google or any other uh, search system, I think you're going to have to put in some work. If you're going to communicate on any subject, you have to do some research. Uh, I also mentioned that you need to widen your vocabulary. Um, I am not one that um, is so much for the gift of dialect. I think dialect has an appropriate place, but I don't think when you're on a public forum speaking and you're going to have a wider audience outside the Caribbean, uh, I think you need to widen your vocabulary, and I think you have to know good English grammar. You can't butcher the Queen's English while you're talking to people and communicating to people overseas. Uh, It might be okay when you're having a conversation in the church or um, if you had a local station that you're talking only to the the local folks. But if you're talking to the wider audience, you definitely have to have a good vocabulary. You have to have uh, understand English grammar. The other thing I said, you've got to keep abreast with current events. So you've got to be listening to the news, reading the news. Um, if you can get any magazines that you can uh, uh, keep information, get information from. Uh, two other things quickly. I think that um, if you really want to improve, you can do a communication course. I believe that every person that goes to the state college, I think, not I think, I know there's a, a, a course on communication. And I've got the book um, at home because uh, my daughter-in-law, she teaches communication. It's a very, very uh, 
book, a very good book, and I think that would be, if you can't go and take a course, I would recommend that you see if you can buy one of those books and study that book yourself. And lastly, try to write down your thoughts. Uh, I personally like to write down almost everything I'm going to say. Uh, and I have to go over it, change a word here, maybe change a certain sentence structure. But uh, that is what gives me confidence because if I don't do that, my thoughts can be can, can stray very easily. So there's just about six or seven things I would suggest that you can try to implement if you're going to improve and become a, um, a good communicator. A follow-up question from the same individual. How do you go about conveying a message across to your receivers so that they understand I have noticed that most people lack this difficulty in expressing themselves, yet most don't understand the writer or speaker. I want to endeavor to be a great communicator. Your insight will be appreciated. Well, I'm speaking from the perspective of dealing with uh, issues, biblical truth. Um, I think one of the key things, if you want to be an effective communicator and people can understand you, you have to have conviction that the Bible is the Word of God. It's infallible. If you have any dilly-dallying about that whatsoever, when questions are posed to you, you're hesitant. For me, there's no hesitancy because I'm totally convinced the Bible is the Word of God, so it has the answers. So I am not uh, in any way um, feel challenged when somebody asks me a question about the Bible. And even if they try to... um, um, accuse me of whatever. Uh, the confidence I have in Scripture uh, that's infallible helps me a lot. The other thing is that you have to believe that there's something called absolute truth. If you are a relativist and you don't know what is right and what is wrong, I don't know how you can deal with problems and deal with issues. So because I believe the Bible is infallible, it's God's Word, I know there's absolute truth in Scripture and this, this uh, uh, emboldens me and it helps me to simplify answers because I just give a biblical answer. I'm not worried about what the psychologists say or what the doctors say or, or who was a PhD says. I'm just going to give you what the Bible says. So that, that simplifies life for me. A third thing I would say is um, you need to get a well-rounded grasp of the Bible in general if you're going to be communicating uh, messages to people so they understand. Uh, if you don't know the contents of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, you have to know it in detail. But you should have a general idea of the tenor of scriptures was about and which book is about etc etc that will help you enormously um, fourthly you need to have a, a library of essential books now if you don't have the books yourself you need to have some access to those books and there are a lot of online resources that are available so you don't have to purchase the book itself there are a lot of free downloads of a lot of uh, um, Bible Hub is one that I can think about right now but you need to have access to that because all of us are limited in our understanding and God has given to men over the years valuable uh, resources and knowledge that they've passed on and that's our heritage as Christians so we ought to be able to tap into that Uh, the fifth thing I would say you must have uh, a proper method of interpretation because when it comes to the Bible, if you don't have a, a proper form of interpretation, you can make the Bible say whatever you want to say. Uh, so you should have, believe in what I call the literal, grammatical, historical method of interpretation. That's the one where you take the Bible literally unless there's some indication in the Bible that is intended to be symbolic. And um, number six and finally, you must have the ability to express your thoughts very simply. Uh, if you read John Bunyan's books, um, The Pilgrim's Progress or The Holy War, 
um, and he's written some poems, poetry as well. You'll find that even though he had never been to college, he had a, a very simplistic method, but yet a very profound method of expressing himself. So I would think you, if you can um, express yourself logically and simply, that would aid and assist people comprehending you and, and understanding what you're saying. Those are just six insights I would share with you. There, there may be others that uh, you might want to investigate, but I think those are very helpful. You started out by saying that you have to have a complete confidence in the infallibility of Scripture. For the listener who's saying, Pastor, I want to have that. I'm not quite to that complete level yet. Uh How do I develop it? Well, I think the first thing you have to do is to start reading it. A lot of people who criticize the Bible have never read it, to be very honest with you. And people who say there's so many contradictions, you ask them, sure you want, they can't produce one because they're just parroting and regurgitating something somebody has said, and they don't really understand uh, anything about the Bible. So I would think the first thing would be to start reading the Scriptures. The other thing I would suggest to you is to get some books on apologetics, Christian apologetics, like um, Evidence That Demands a Virgin, uh, um, verdict. a Verdict by Josh McDowell, uh, Ron Rhodes is another good author that has several, several books. Uh, Geisler, Norman Geisler, anything that you that was written by Geisler, get your hand on, uh, is very, very helpful for you. So I would suggest that you get those. And then if they're, um, you're going to a point where people ask you questions and you weren't too sure of the answer, that's where these apologetic books comes in. Uh, so when they ask you a question you don't have an answer for, you can investigate because look, there are so many good books out there that are able to help people who have questions about the Bible, and there are answers to these uh, questions that people have. Sometimes it's found in the actual meaning of the word, getting the etymology of the word. Sometimes it has to do with the understanding, the cultural background, the historical background to the book, etc., etc. And often, by the way, uh, there have been new discoveries uh, because people who are accustomed to the old books that were once very highly critical of the Bible, those books are so outdated because the evidence that have come forward since those books were written, those books are no longer valid. But a lot of times people are not aware that those books raise questions, that those questions had been answered. So again, that's why it's important to do that kind of reading. And the other thing I would say, if you, you have been doubts, get under a ministry of a person who does expository preaching. I think that would strengthen your faith if you were to get under that kind of a ministry. What do you mean by expository, if I'm not familiar with that? Well, expository preaching is basically uh, a systematic preaching through a book, uh, letting the theme come from the book itself, rather than you come up with topics out of your head. Uh, topical preaching is, I decided I'm going to preach on love today, and I took up all the Bible verses that deal with love. Uh, if I'm going to preach a topically um, Exposing on, on love, I would take Corinthians chapter 13 and let that be the contents and the uh, the divisions of the book itself. So expository preaching has basically to do to let the the uh, the theme and the topic you're dealing with come out of the text itself and the subpoints as much as possible come out of the text themselves. With topical, you just draw draw from everywhere. Uh, one of the good advantages of expository preaching is that you come to topics. Uh, in sequence so nobody can accuse you that you selected this topic to to target them because that's the problem with topical preaching anytime it's choose a topic and it's not somebody is saying well you know he's talking about me whatever it is but in expository preaching uh, it gives you that wonderful opportunity to deal with the topic as it comes so nobody's now saying that well you know uh, he's targeting me it's very very helpful there's a verse or the philosophy in the Bible that says, to whom much is given, much is expected, much mm-hmm. is required. Does that apply to us here in the English-speaking world? Well, I, I don't think there's any doubt about that. There's no other uh, 
group of uh, people um, who speak English who have been endowed with such riches. I mean, uh, sometimes I feel very sorry for people who are not don't speak English because of the resources we have. For example, anyone these days uh, today can virtually understand what the Greek word means and tra- trace that word using English uh, means, etc., etc. Uh, you can be, you can you can speak very scholarly, even though you've never done a day in Greek. Or Hebrew, yeah. because of the resources that we have, and then if you want background to Bible books and uh, understand uh, by using a Bible dictionary, Bible encyclopedia, in most cases those are available in English, but they're very there are many there are many other languages that they're not available in. So I think we have a an abundance of riches that we have, is our heritage, and I, I think because we have that, uh, we are accountable for the best use of those resources. It's it's really. Um, in my judgment, uh, a mistake not to utilize those resources. I've said many times, uh, both in the pulpit and probably on the radio, I, I don't believe in reinventing the wheel. If I'm going to deal with a topic, and um, I'm not going to, well, you, you take the topic from the book itself. But again, I want to find out what other people said about the topic after I've exhausted what I think about it because my mind is limited. And that helps to expand your preaching. There's some people say, well, you know, you just wait and let God fill your brain. But why did God give all these men to the church? Yeah. Right? It's like, I, I, you know, why do we have the epistle, Paul's epistles? So if I want to deal with the top, do I not go to Paul's epistles? And if God has endowed the church with these, these, these men from, from, and by the way, some of the greatest books that you'll ever read are not the modern books. The real deep books, uh, the old English books, especially written by a lot of English authors. Uh, I'm not discounting Domus and I'm not discounting other uh, things, but they seem to have a, a richness that uh, is missing today. Uh, if anybody have read, read J.C. Ryle's books, very, very, very simple, but very, very profound, deep insight. Key uh, comes to mind uh, almost uh, immediately, and there are so many others that we can talk about, but. Um, a lot of great English writers, um, old English writers, their books, especially the Puritans, profound books, great books. You're listening to That's Truth on the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse, and we are glad that you are. It is a live, interactive call-in program. We are here to answer your questions according to a biblical worldview, according to Scripture. You can contact us with your questions, or maybe it's a suggested topic, maybe it's a concern that you have. Maybe it's not a question that you have, but a question that was asked to you. A coworker, a family member, someone asked you a question, and you're not exactly sure how the best way is to answer it. You can call and ask your question live on the air by calling 1-268-462-7420. The phone line is open, available, and awaiting your call. 268-462-7420. If you would rather WhatsApp or text your question, you can send it to 1-268-782-1454. WhatsApp or text 268-782-1454. You can also join us on Facebook Live. Go to the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse Facebook page. Click on the Facebook Live video feed, and welcome to those of you who have joined us that way. And you can not only listen to the program, watch the program behind the scenes, but you can right there in your comment section send in your question. We're broadcasting from the island of Antigua on 1160 AM, 92.3 FM, 
and online at radiolighthouse.org. And now that I've got all of that information out of the way, we are going to jump back to our topic of the death of Jesus Christ and the significance of it. We've been touching on this topic for a couple of episodes now, Pastor. For the listener who has just tuned in, can you give a quick uh, highlight review so that they aren't uh, completely left behind as we pick into new material? Yeah, well, we picked up the death of Christ because it's a sequel to the resurrection. Uh, maybe the order we did it was reverse. We should have probably have looked at good uh, the Sunday, Tuesday before and deal with Good Friday, uh, and then we should have done with the resurrection. But because we dealt with the resurrection, uh, we felt it was to balance it out to deal with the whole death of Christ. But the death of Christ is, of course, the supreme, of supreme importance uh, to the church. Um, I, it is, can be safe to say that the fundamental teaching of the Old Testament is the death of Christ. Everything pointed to his coming, every sacrifice, a lot of the types all pointed. The resurrection is mentioned, but not as frequently as his death. Mm. Uh, It's underscored that this one that is coming is going to die for humankind, die for sin, so that we may have atonement. And so you find that several times it's it's, it's foretold in the Bible, uh, very, very frequently. Uh, We find also that it's prominent in the New Testament. And uh, we discover that even though the Bible speaks of the Incarnation, the Incarnation is just a means to an end of his death. In other words, the whole purpose of the Incarnation is, is for death. We also talked about the fact that it's the fundamental theme of the Gospel. There's no Gospel apart from the death of Christ. And of course, it's the great essential of, of, of Christianity. Uh, so we, 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 we underscore that. And then we talked about the different theories that are held, the accidental theory, the martyr theory, the moral theory the governmental theory and the penal substitutionary theory. Because uh, even though the Bible emphasizes this truth, you've always got false teachers who are trying to undermine the the teaching of the Bible and coming up with with theories that uh, destroy the atonement. And one of the theories that that they use is that it's immoral for Christ to have died for somebody else. Every man has to die for himself. Uh, And uh, we pointed out that even in war, uh, there are many times when a grenade is thrown that with a mist of soldiers, and one soldier rushes on it and takes the the, the, uh, the blow for everybody that's preserving. So we can understand the the courage uh, and the virtue of that kind of sacrifice. And substantially, that's what Christ did for us. We we could not die for ourselves. We were sinners, and God came up with the absolute solution that the impeccable, sinless Christ would die in our place. And that is just an essence of what the Bible teaches so that we may have forgiveness and atonement. I don't think there's any way that this side of eternity will ever be able to completely understand the meaning of the death of Christ. But if we do a quick review of Scripture, what meaning does Scripture apply or ascribe to the death of Christ? Well, the, the, the real true meaning behind the death of Christ relates to the biblical doctrine of atonement. So you'll never understand Christ's death unless you get a grasp of of, of atonement. Um, and no one expresses that better uh, in terms of what his death was intended to accomplish and do than Isaiah 53, verse 10. I don't know if you can just read that, please. Yeah, give me just a second. I'll pull it up here. The book of Isaiah in a very familiar chapter. Isaiah 53 and verse number 10, 10 reads as follows. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed. 
he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. I mean, that is one of the great verses of the Bible, uh, that he will make his soul an offering for sin. Uh, clearly, the, the doctrine of it's being taught there that when Christ died, he's not dying for our his sin, he's dying for our sin. So that's the idea behind the concept. So the why, fir- would, why uh, does it start, Pastor? Why does it say it pleased the Lord to bruise him? Isn't that... It makes it almost makes the Lord out to be have evil intent, be a, a vicious person. But don't forget that uh, this is a decision that was made in the council of God from eternity that one would have to die for the sins of the world. So that's a voluntary act uh, on, on Christ's part. But again, even though he's God's son and God's son in whom I'm well pleased, uh, he has decided that um, it's going to be the thing that he's going to do. So even though it, of course, if you're talking about a father's love for a son, there has to be some measure of pain there. But again, it's the only way that the sins can be forgiven. Remember that Christ is a God-man. As a man, he can die in man's place because man sinned. But to make his death efficacious for all men, and also to make it acceptable to God, he has to be God at the same time. It's like a perfect mediator. Mm. It's like Christ taking hold of the hand of man and taking on the hand of God. And because he is both man and God, he can bring the two together in what is called reconciliation. So God is pleased to do that because it brings about redemption to mankind. It doesn't mean that he gets some kind of sadistic pleasure out of it, but he's pleased to do it uh, to redeem uh, mankind. So he's willing to sacrifice his son. That's why the Bible says, uh, in this was manifested the love of God, in that he sent his son to uh, to redeem us, to, to pray for the sins of the world. Here uh, it also says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Uh, so it's the, the idea that he's willing, to, he's, he's pleased in willing to sacrifice his son is an indication of his love for humanity. He's willing to make that sacrifice for his son. Uh, I don't think many of us um, would be prepared to, to have made that sacrifice. Mm-hmm. And then when you understand what really happened, and the brutality of it, the demeaning of it, the scandal of it, uh, um, the mockery of it, and the, the, you know, you just think about what he went through. Imagine standing there and seeing your son go through all of that, and here's the, the taunt, you save others, why don't you come down and save yourself? I mean, here you have all infinite power to crush everything, yeah. but yet you stay there on the cross because you were born to die, and you voluntarily decided to take the, the pay the price for human sin. That is infinite sacrifice, but it's, it's, it's God's pleasure, but it, at a great cost to himself, and it's an expression of his supreme love for humanity. So uh, to answer your question then, the element there is that this uh, death involves what is called, it's a vicarious death. It's a substitutionary death uh, where one dies in place of another. That's the uh, one of the key elements in, in Scripture, that Christ did not die for his own sin. But the consistent teaching that of because of his impeccable sin, sinlessness, he was able to die on the behalf of humanity. Look at First Peter chapter two verse, chapter two verse twenty-two. First Peter two twenty-two says, "Who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth." Yeah, and then so he's sinless. And then uh, one of one Hebrews chapter four verse fifteen. Hebrews 4, verse 15 says, For we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, 
but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Sinless. See, this is what... Uh, so, you cannot die unless sin is what brings death. So, the fact that he died indicates that he dies for sin, but it's not mm-hmm. for his own sin. So, it's a vicarious death. It's a substitutionary death. He's dying in our place. That's the biblical doctrine from the book of Genesis right down through all the scripture. When uh, Adam sinned, an animal was killed and he was clothed. The innocent was uh, symbolically slain in order to clothe. And that's the whole idea of uh, 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 atonement covering, uh, etc. When Isaac was being offered and the Lord um, tell Abraham not to do any harm, he caught, he, uh, it's a ram caught in the, in the um, thicket. Thicket, thicket. He is sacrificed in place. That is vicarious. He's taking the place of Isaac and, and substitute. And all the Old Testament sacrifices you find in the book of Leviticus, these are not... Um, paganistic, um, legendary uh, events. These are ordained uh, practices and sacrifices that God ordained to symbolically and and typologically uh, illustrate the fact that uh, one would die uh, for the innocent and all those sacrifices were pointed to Jesus Christ when he he would come. Um, So it is vicarious. Uh, Also, um, Nathan, if you look at, uh, we look at Isaiah 53, look at verse 5 and 6 that this was a vicarious death for the sins of uh, of others. Isaiah 53, 5 and 6. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us. Very, very clear. It's for our sins. It's for our iniquity. The Lord have laid on him uh, our our sins. Uh, he is his sin bearer. Uh, so he died of vicarious death. If you look also at Second um, Corinthians five twenty one. Second Corinthians chapter five and verse twenty one says, "For he hath made him to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him." There is a great transaction that he takes our sin and then he imputes to us his righteousness. So it's not just that he dies for our sins to forgive us, but we need more than just sins forgiven. We need righteousness. And that's why the Bible talks imputed righteousness. So Christ takes our sins and deal with our sins and pardon our sins, and God imputes Christ's righteousness to us when we put our faith and trust in Christ. Uh, look at one or two other verses. Um, 1 Peter 2.24 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 24 says, who his own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, being dead to sins, should live unto righteousness, by whose stripes we are healed. He bears our own sin in his own body on the tree. Very, very clear. It's our sins that he came to take and uh, would cast upon him uh, when he put his when, when he was crucified for us. So he's, he died uh, as our, our subject. One last verse um, might be helpful. First um, Peter 3, 8. First Peter 3 and verse number 8 says, Finally, be ye all of one mind, having compassion one for another. Love as brethren. Be pitiful. Be courteous. That's First Peter 3.18? Uh, that's 3.8, sorry. Let me scroll 18, down to verse 18. 18. Sorry. First Peter 3.18 says, For Christ also hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring to us God, being put to death in the flesh, 
but quickened by the Spirit. Again, the just suffers for the unjust. That is the innocent suffering for the guilty, and so that we may be brought to God and receive uh, God's favor and God's righteousness. I think when I mean we can give you so many countless verses in the Bible that indicates clearly that this was a vicarious death, where one is dying in place of another and taking the penalty that was due to the sinner upon himself. That's the biblical doctrine. That's why if you look at First Corinthians five seven, uh, there's a comparison there. First Corinthians five analogy. seven. Purge out therefore the old leaven that ye may be a new lump, as ye are unleavened. For even Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us. That is a biblical allusion to the book of Exodus, chapter 20, when there was a Passover lamb. Remember uh, when the deaf angel was going to come to and slay all the firstborn of Pharaoh? And God told the children of Israel to sacrifice a lamb, put it on the lentils on the posts, and anyone that was in the house where the blood was applied to the lentil in the posts uh, would be protected. But if the blood was not applied to the house, the firstborn of everyone will be died. And that's called the Passover. This is typical of what the Bible is teaching. Just like the blood of the Passover lamb protected uh, God's people from the death angel, uh, and similarly, when we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, the same blood applied to our lives protect us also from eternal death uh, that is due to, uh, to humankind because of the sin. So that is why Christ is called the Passover, because the Old Testament Passover pointed to Christ and the fact that his blood would be the means of protecting us from eternal death. So it, it, it's, it's substitutionary. The other thing about uh, the, as far as the death uh, the Bible also says it's a, um, a, a satisfaction. And what I mean by the satisfaction, Nathan, is that the fundamental attribute of God is his holiness. When man sinned, man outraged God's holiness, and God's holiness had to be appeased because of man's sin, wrath was due to humankind. So there had to be some means of appeasing God's wrath. And the, the death of Christ is presented in the Bible as the means of satisfying God's wrath and uh, meeting the demands of, of uh, that God's wrath uh, demanded. For example, God's holiness also relates to his justice, and God's justice had to be satisfied. Uh, God could not blink his eye and just forgive man because man uh, confessed his sin. Uh, God was offended. And the offense of God's justice, that justice had to be satisfied because if God's a moral rule of the universe, he just can't uh, ignore his laws and allow his laws to be violated. So that's why the death of Christ is also not only a vicarious death dying for our part, but it's also satisfying the wrath that was due to God and paying the price that was due to God. That's why it's called a, uh, a satisfaction. Now, obviously, the sinner cannot satisfy God's righteousness because he's a sinner. Right. And that's why it was important that people understand that Christ was not just a man. He had to be God. In other words, in my mind, it's impossible for a person to be saved who does not believe that Jesus Christ was God. I don't see how you could absolutely be saved because that is an essential feature of atonement and redemption. It's an essential feature of, of, of being a mediator, uh, etc. And that is why I don't want to uh, get off on a, a thing here that people might be offended, but that's why when people say that Jesus is not God, like the JW, for example, I find it difficult to conceive of a person who believes that to really be a child of God because how do you get saved 
if you, you believe in a different saving than the Bible presents. It's like, how can you believe in the God and believe in a different God of the Bible? That's why I say, for example, people who believe in evolution, I can never see an evolution as a saved person because it means the God you believe in is not the God of the Bible because the God of the Bible created by His Son, Jesus Christ. And you're saying He created by a process of evolution. So which is correct. It boils down to what the Bible teaches on these matters. You either embrace the, the, the biblical doctrine on these matters, or you don't. You can't have it both ways. And that's why I say to you that uh, believing the infallibility of the Bible and believing in absolute truth simplifies life for me and simplifies talking, quite frankly, because, again, I go back to Scripture. I, I'm not worried about what this theologian say, what the psychologist say, what the doctor said, that's immaterial because your fundamental core beliefs is what is built around the Bible. So that makes it easy for me. Um, but there has to be the satisfaction. And then, of course, it had to satisfy the law because the law is an expression of God's character. And Christ's life and his death they call his life his passive righteousness, his death is active righteousness. But his the, 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 death is his passive righteousness and his life is his active righteousness. So you needed both, you need to fulfill the law in detail, but he also had to die. So that is why his life is as important as his death, because the law cannot be laid aside as a means of God dealing with us until somebody fulfills the law for us. But once the law is fulfilled, that covenant now can be set aside and a new covenant can be made. But you can't make a new covenant unless that law is satisfied. And that's what the book of Hebrews is about, that the first, um, the first covenant was by blood. And now the second covenant is by blood, but also by a more excellent blood because this is the eternal blood of God's eternal Son. So that's where the new covenant is superior to the old covenant. So that is why God deals with us today on the basis of grace. He could not have dealt with us on the basis of grace unless that law had been fulfilled and had been able to be set aside as a basis for God dealing with us. That's why it's so crucially important to understand it's not only a satisfaction of His justice, but also a satisfaction of every single thing that the law demanded. Pastor, why did God not just create us as perfect beings and keep us perfect to save his son, all of this confusion, hassle, and heartache? There's no question that there's some mystery to this. You can't dispute that. But again, if God is going to create uh, some being in his image, the being has to have choice. And uh, that is the only explanation I can, I, can, I can see that unless we want to be robots, that we must do everything that, that God tells us to do, and we were made that we didn't have a choice. But if we were made that way, we are not beings made in the image of God, because part of being made in the image of God is the freedom of choice. So there was always an element of risk. Once you give people choice, it's an element of risk, and God was prepared to take that, that risk. Now, the question is, why did he want to do that? I would say to you that I think that man's redemption is wrapped up with God uh, dealing with the whole problem of evil in the universe. Um, um, my theodicy basically has to do with the fact that I think that um, in dealing with Satan and his rebellion, um, man is part of how God justly deals with that because Satan has intruded into the into the into um into planet Earth basically and he has subtly misled humankind. 
And somehow I believe that the whole matter of dealing with the whole matter of sin in the universe is wrapped up with human redemption. But the only the, the thing I believe there is that there has to be free choice. And I think that that free choice is what was at risk. And somehow God felt that the risk, the, the, the end result, uh, was worth taking the risks in order to bring about the t- entire redemption of the whole universe because of the chaos that Satan um, Satan created. Now, I can't prove that from the Bible, but it makes good sense to me that man... That's why I think man is so important to be very in part of God's plan. Uh, I think that he is part of the, the means that God is going to use to deal with this whole question of sin in the universe, and God has to deal with it in a very just form. He just can't seem to be doing it vindictively. Right? He has to be taking just steps as a righteous God to deal with this problem. And I think man is part of that. That's why man is so significant in terms of God's plan for the universe. I've often marveled at the fact I enjoy making things, and I've often marveled at the fact that God knew that his creation was going to turn mm-hmm. their back on him, but yet he still made us. He still allowed us to be created. Yeah, you know, you take your children, you know that's the possibility of having children that you're going to got a bad child, they're going to turn against you. But again, it's a risk that you think is worth having, Nathan, because uh, if you look back and say, well, you know, um, what if the child turns out bad? You never have a child. Mm-hmm. But what uh, what if the child turns out to be good and you have a real treasure? I mean, I enjoy my grandchildren like I've never enjoyed my children because for the first time in my life, uh, I'm at a stage where you're at your final stage of life and you look at life completely different. Uh, when you're having your children, you're doing a lot of things and you're working, you're trying to do that and your wife is out and you've got to take care of your kids. You're just busy, 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 busy. You don't have time to relax, enjoy, to see how they develop, et cetera, et cetera. Now I can do that without having the rush around, uh, et cetera, et cetera. But it's worth the risk. Anybody will tell you that having kids is worth the risk, even though you know you can have a bad child. We have a WhatsApp question that's just come in. Good night, Pastor. When a man and woman, when a man and woman are having sex, is it a sin for them to talk about other people? Well, I don't know about talking to other people. Why would you want talk, to talk? Talking about other people. Well, I, I don't know why you would want to talk to other people. I would think you want to talk to your wife and and uh, butter her up. Right. Uh, if you talk other people know, um, I find that difficult to be. I'm just trying to imagine it, <laughs> and yeah. it seems so 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 odd. Uh, is it a distraction? Uh, I can see that being employed is a, a, a distraction because you probably don't want to reach orgasm before she works orgasm. So you have to distract her mind. I can see those kind of things happening. Uh, but I think that's something that has to be worked out between the two persons. Um, if the other person not offended. Uh, AM and 92.3 FM. You can also listen on, join us on Facebook. Go to the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse Facebook page and click on the Facebook Live video feed. And right there on your device, you can comment your questions. Maybe it's a suggested topic you'd like us to discuss in a future episode. We would love to have your input. Pastor, there definitely seems to be some confusion. And some no, con- let me, uh, yeah. I, I'm not finished with yeah. this, this yeah. thing. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, go yeah. ahead. Yeah. yeah, we're talking about the meaning of the death of Christ, and we talked about the fact that um, it's a vicarious death. We talked about the fact that it's a... It renders satisfaction to the justice of God and to the law of God. 
But the Bible also um, speaks of it as an atonement. And that word atonement means to cover. Um, in Leviticus 6 to 2, you see that there's an atonement for the individual. He would have to make a sacrifice and that his sins might be forgiven. Uh, in Leviticus chapter 14, 4, verse 13 to 20, it has to do with the National Day of Atonement where a sacrifice is made for the entire nation. So you've got a personal atonement and you've got national atonement. Uh, when you look at the passages that deal with the atonement in Leviticus chapter 2 and Leviticus chapter 4, th there's some very clear things that are very, very obvious there. The sacrifice of the animal, whether it be a bull or a ram, there must be death. So clearly the atonement involves death. If you're going to have uh, the covering of sin, there must be death. The second thing is that forgiveness is only possible uh, if the animal dies in place of the individual. So forgiveness is based on the substitutionary death of the animal. Same thing in relation to Christ. And then the animal that is being sacrificed has to be clean and faultless and impeccable, showing that the sacrifice that has to be made to atone for man's sin, to cover man's sin, must be a sinless, um, perfect sacrifice. And that's where Christ comes in. So the whole idea is that the sins of the criminal must be covered over, and the substitute's blood must be shed, and that blood covers the, 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 uh, the, the criminal's thing. But in order for that blood to have efficacy, it must be a sinless, impeccable, uh, perfect sacrifice. All of this is pointing to the... So it's not just a matter of vicarious dying as a substitute. It's not just a matter of... Uh, um, satisfying the justice of God and the law of God, but it also has to do with the idea of covering and offering forgiveness for sin, and that is only possible by a perfect substitute uh, given of his, his blood. Um, if you look at um, Psalm 51 for just a moment. Psalm 51, verse 9. Hide thy face from my sins and blot out all mine iniquities. Yeah, that's the whole idea of atonement, is that uh, God now, as it were, is not looking on your sin any longer. He's, he's going to almost take like a marker and just wiping it all out. So that's the whole concept behind there of atonement. The, the fourth thing, Nathan, that was accomplished through the, uh, the death of Christ, he accomplished what is called propitiation. It's another good biblical term. It's a big word, tongue yeah. twister. <laughs> <laughs> and the Greek word means to uh, to appease. It means to um, uh, propitiate. Um, it's a word that is used very frequently in the Bible, and it really means to cancel or release you from your sin, right? So it's not just covering, no, but the, the sins are actually canceled, and you're released from the guilt of those sins. That's what propitiation is. Look at um, Luke. 18 verse 13 that word is found there and the publican standing afar off would not lift up so much as his eyes unto the heaven but smote upon his own breast saying God be merciful to me a sinner you see that word merciful yeah that's the word be propitiated to me huh. that, that's a little word it's not they're not the normal word for mercy so he's asking uh, for appeasement He's asking for forgiveness, right? Um, you also look at um, Hebrews 2, 17. Book of Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 17 says, 
Wherefore, in all things it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. Yeah, that word merciful, um, mercy seat that is mentioned there, that is the word uh, for propitiation. So the mercy seat is a means of God appeasing God's wrath because the blood is applied. So you're now released of your, your the guilt, your forgiveness, the sins are cancelled. That's the whole concept behind it. Uh, a better expression of it is found in First John chapter 2, verse 2. First John two, 2, verse two, 2 says, And he is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. That expresses it perhaps in more clear, clear language, but he's a propitiation. That's the key word that is used in the word is helicos. And he has the same concept of propitiation, appeasement. He has the idea of cancelling and releasing from, from guilt. And then one other one is First John 4.10. First John 4.10 says, Herein is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Same word there. So he is the one who's appeased God's wrath and now enabled us to um, have our sins canceled. But the whole idea is the idea of cancellation and appeasing God. So it's, a, it's also propitiation. This is just biblical terms. And by the way, uh, I must say this, uh, when you read the the Bible, you remember that these churches that are the Bible written to are f- first-time believers. But yet these are words that the Apostle Paul uses. And today, you ask people what these words mean, and we don't know them, which is an embarrassment. These are not people that were um, educated, per se. These were a lot of people who were slaves that were part of the church. But yet the Apostle Paul did not think that these terms were above their understanding and their, their, and their comprehension. And that's why he uses them so extensively in, in the Scriptures. And um, I'm appalled sometimes that believers are not familiar with these terms, that these first century believers who don't have half a quality of education we have, uh, but again, that gives you the idea of how confident Paul was that these terms could be comprehended by uh, the believers. The fifth thing uh, that I think is important is the it brings about reconciliation. Uh, propitiation and reconciliation are two words that are very closely linked. It's like one is the the, the effect as a result, effect okay. and result, right? Because of uh, propitiation, we now have reconciliation. And the concept behind reconciliation is to bring us back into a, a, a an estranged relationship so that our friendship is restored. That's the whole idea behind reconciliation. If you look at um, Romans 5.10. Romans 5.10 says, For if we, when we were enemies... We were reconciled to God by death of his son. Much more, being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Notice that the reconciliation, the restoration of this friendship, this relationship, was dependent on the death of his son. So an element of the significance of his death has to do with the reconciliation. Uh, if you look in uh, Matthew 5.24, you notice that's the offended person who has to be reconciled. Matthew 5.24. Matthew 5.24, Leave there thy gift before the altar, and go thy way, first to be reconciled to thy brother, 
and then come and offer thy gift. Yeah. Remember, it's the offended brother that you realize you offended the brother and you go to reconcile. So really, in truth and fact, is the sinner should take the initiative in reconciliation because he's offended God. Mm-hmm. But God has reversed that. God is the one who's taken the initiative to reconcile us to himself, see? But it's really the sinner, but because of his depravity, because of his love of his sin and his sin nature, uh, he has not that desire to be reconciled to God. So God, as it were, reached out to man and took the initiative. That's why salvation is always the initiative of God. It's never humankind that starts the initiative of salvation. Salvation is of the Lord because he initiated this for us. If you look at Second Corinthians five eighteen and 19, Second Corinthians chapter 5, verses 18 and 19. And all things are of God, who hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ, and hath given to us the ministry of reconciliation. Verse 19. To wit, that God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, and hath commun- committed unto us the word of reconciliation. One last verse. Read verse 21 as well. For he hath made him to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. That's how the reconciliation process, his death being made sin for us, has made reconciliation possible for us. But again, notice that God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself. He took initiative to bring back man into relationship with himself. Man would never have ever pursued God in that relation, except God had taken initiative. The thought behind reconciliation, Nathan, is that in the beginning, God had a relation of friendship with humanity. God would come down in the garden, speak to man. When Adam listened to the enemy and disobeyed God, uh, he virtually turned his back on God and went his own way. When man turned his back on God, God himself turned away from man because man turned away from God. Christ's death, on the other hand, um, satisfied and appeased God's uh, uh, wrath. And that now made God uh, again turn his face to humankind to reconcile. So what man has to do now is as God extends this opportunity of reconciliation, man now has to turn around. Like The same way God turned around and face man again and, and reach out to man. Man's responsibility now to turn around and, and come. That's where repentance comes in. The idea of turning around comes in. So that's the whole concept behind reconciliation. You've got two people who were friends. There's now been a sin. They've separated and now they have to be reconciled. But one does it. The other one has as, as well to bring about that. And the Bible explains that that all comes about through the death of, of Jesus Christ. And then the last thing about the, his death in terms of meaning is presented in the Bible as a ransom. Look at uh, Matthew twenty, twenty-eight. Matthew twenty and verse twenty-eight. Even as the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give His life a ransom for many. And then Mark ten forty-five says. It's a part of the passage. Mark 10.45 reads as follows. For even the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. Yeah, the idea of ransom there, basically, it has to do with uh, paying a price or paying a debt uh, that it's owed to someone to get released. 
And that's precisely what Christ's death was as well. It was a ransom uh, not paid to Satan because Satan has no legal authority over humankind. Satan is a usurper. He's an enemy who's invaded God's territory. So the, the ransom is paid to God because God is the one who's been offended by man's disobedience. And that's the biblical teaching there. So it has to do with redemption, the idea of paying a debt to set somebody free. And the Bible presents humankind outside of Jesus Christ as enslaved to sin, under the bondage of sin. And in order for that, uh, the hold of sin to be broken, the debt has to be paid to God, who then releases man from the hold of sin and sets man free so that men are no longer slaves to sin, but are now slaves to righteousness. So that idea is, so you're talking about um, vicarious atonement you're talking about uh, uh, it's vicarious you're talking about the fact that it's a, an atonement it's a ransom it's a reconciliation uh, you're talking about the fact that it's um, a satisfaction uh, it's a ransom but the, so there's six different things that uh, it, that's why the, the biblical doctrine of the death of Christ if you surrender that if you uh, say that Christ did not die on the cross you have no Christianity. You have no faith. Uh, you have denied every single major propitiation, reconciliation, redemption. <laughs> Everything goes through the door. So when people say that Christ died maybe to, as an example or as a martyr, and it has no reference to the matter of sin, the sin question, you have people who are not Christians. And it had to be said they are simply not Christians. No matter what they profess to believe, if you don't believe in Christ's vicarious death on the cross, you are simply not a Bible-believing uh, born again believer you're simply not a Christian and you might be in the church but you're simply not a true born again believer that's the essence of it some of those verses that you had me read reference the fact that Jesus took our sin upon himself do you think the physical pain and anguish that he went through at the crucifixion was worse or do you think it was the spiritual pain that was worse <sighs> You know, the Bible doesn't give us any um, great details about that. The only um, indication that we have that this was a, 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 a burden, a weight, um, an anguish, uh, a depth of atrocity. When he said, um, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? I think that was probably his darkest moment. We have no idea what it is to enjoy fellowship with God from all eternity. And then for the first time in your entire life, there is this estrangement and alienation between you and God that you had never, ever encountered. I think the depth of that is, is more spiritual than it is physical. Of course, when you read the, the story, if you've seen the, um, the thing that Mel Gibson did, uh, what was it? The Passion? The Passion. If you see The Passion, I think he tried to really bring out the the uh, the atrocities that were committed and the real physical part of it, right? I think you can't watch that without seeing the brutality of that, the raw and sadistic uh, expressions you see that. And anyone that sees that, you, you almost become very sympathetic. How can anyone go through what he went through, uh, etc.? But again, I think the, the, the greatest and deepest expression of the anguish was my God, my God, why has thou forsaken me? And that, to my mind, speaks more of the anguish of the soul than it does about the physical body. But make no bones about it. Um, he being a perfect man and he being uh, a perfect God, uh, we can never plumb the depths of what it is for that person to assume 
the consequence of sin. I don't think we can ever fathom that debt. A lot of eternity uh, that we're going to have to find out, but the Bible reveals uh, these things, but not to the measure of uh, depth that we would, would like to, to, to be able to understand. We have another WhatsApp question from Antigua. Thank you to the individuals who are sending in your questions. Good evening, Pastor Murphy. When Cain went and lived in the valley of Nod, in the land of Nod, where did the people of Nod come from? He met his wife there. Where did she come from? Were the offsprings of Adam and Eve, or God created other people? Were they the offsprings of Adam and Eve, or did God create other people in other places yeah. on earth? Yeah, this is one of the problems that people have. Um, the Bible treats a character, what I call full treatment. They'll talk about uh, Abel and give the full life of Abel. They don't give you any details in between. Same thing with Cain. They talk about Cain, Cain, sin, and Cain, went, went, but they don't give you the details. That's called the full treatment of Cain. But clearly, uh, the Bible indicates that all people came from a couple. So clearly, Cain would have married either his sister or his niece or someone down the line. Uh, and that's where that happens. But the Bible doesn't give you all the details about... Um, and by the way, also the Bible also uh, hurriedly uh, doesn't give you full details about people who are not in the line of the Messiah. Okay. Very, very short. Summarize your life in a very brief thing, but it, it spends tremendous time in those who are in the line of the Messiah, of the seed. You'll find that, that matter. So because there's not full treatment of the matter uh, in sequential order, uh, people think that there had to be extra people, etc., etc. But that's not the case. We know that uh, God made a man and woman. Every single human being who's ever on planet Earth came from those two. So certainly there was, uh, at the beginning, intermarriage within uh, families, and as sin uh, deepened and uh, sin began to affect the body more, when we come to the book of Leviticus, uh, God put restrictions on people intermarrying within certain uh, degrees of, of family relationships. And uh, genetically, scientists will tell you that uh, that's a wise thing because if you marry intermarry within family, uh, it weakens the gene pool and it make yourself susceptible to diseases, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but no, there's, there's no other humankind or any other creatures that were made. You just got to understand the biblical principle of full treatment, and uh, then you had to dovetail that into this. It's like, uh, where he got his wife from? Well, obviously he married his sister, right? Uh, who else are you going to marry? Yeah. <laughs> Thank you very much to the individual who sent in that question. We appreciate you sending it in. If you have a question, you can send it via WhatsApp or text message to 268-782-1454. You may be thinking, but my question doesn't pertain to the death of Christ or anything else you're talking about. That's fine. We will gladly put on pause the topic that we're discussing and answer your question. And then as we wait for your question, we will return to the topic of the death of Christ and the significance of that. Maybe you don't want to WhatsApp or text, but you'd rather call and be put live on the air. The phone line is open and available, awaiting your call. The number to call is 268-462-7420. Or you can send in your question on the comment section on the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse Facebook page. When you click on the Facebook Live video feed right there on the comment section on your device, you can send in your question that way. Pastor, there is definitely confusion and controversy when it comes to the 
extent of Christ's death. And I guess the what I'm getting at is, for whom did Christ die? You know that if you two main groups that you would discover today that is split between the Arminians and the Calvinists, and the debate centers around substantially around this whole question of who Christ died for. Um, did he die for the world, or did he die only for the elect? This is one of the most controversial issues that you will find uh, uh, in, in theological books and within seminaries and also among students who, are, who study the scripture. Um, it depends how you look at it. If you, how you, I don't know if you ever heard of the order decrees, okay, but uh, theologians have come up with uh, certain order decrees. Is uh, something called the superlapsarian and the sublapsarian, uh, which has to do really with the order in which God gave these particular degrees. Now, if you are a superlapsarian, you are hyper-Calvinist, and this is the order decrees that you... Let me explain what I mean. First of all, God decreed to save some and reprobate the rest. So Calvinists start with that first... That was the first decree. That before God um, uh, created... God decree to save and rep- save some and reprobate others. That, that's the first decree. Okay, so before there's any creation, God has already decided that some people are going to be saved and some people are going to be lost. That's the first decree. Secondly, there's a second decree to create both those who are to be saved and those who are to be reprobated. Thirdly, the decree to permit the full fall of both, so both of them are going to fall. Those who are going to be saved and those who are not going to be saved. And number four, the degree to provide salvation only for the saved elect. So if you're a Calvinist, because you begin with that first decree as God reprobating some and God saving some, uh, you say that Christ only died for who? The elect. The elect. That, that, is, a, that is a thing. Um, if you are sublapsarian now, your order of decrees is different. You believe, first of all, God created Secondly, God permitted his creation to fall. Thirdly, uh, God provided salvation sufficient for all. And then fourthly, God decreed to secure the acceptance of salvation on the basis of the faith of the elect. So it's all human theory, let me put it that way, because we were not there when these decrees are supposed to be made. Right, and uh, Calvin, uh, because he started with the reprobation of the elect and the uh, reprobation of some of the, and the saving of some of, of elect, uh, that led to the idea that Christ only died for the elect and not for the world. It's interesting, Nathan, that in his later years, Calvin accepted unlimited theory of atonement. When he wrote the commentary on 1 John chapter 2, let me quote what he wrote on 1 John chapter 2, verse 2. Read 1 John chapter 2, verse 2. Yeah, let me scroll down here. 1 John chapter 2 and verse 2 says, And he is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole So this world. is what he wrote on that commentary. Let me just show you. I'm reading to you what he wrote, okay? He said, Christ suffered for the sins of the whole world, and in the goodness of God is offered unto all men without distinction. His blood being shed not for the part of the world only, but for the whole human race. For although uh, in the world nothing is found uh, worthy of the favor of God, 
yet he holds out the propitiation to the whole world, since without exception, he summons all to the faith in Christ, which is nothing else than the door of hope. That's Calvin. You would never believe that Calvin wrote that. You listen to these people who are hyper-Calvinists. I don't know if they have never read his, his commentary in First John, but this is quite clearly saying that salvation is available to all. Yeah. But the problem can only be solved ultimately by looking at Scripture. And when we look at Scripture, Nathan, we find two things. The Bible says that Christ died for the world and Christ died for the elect. The elect is a subsect of the world. That's what I'm trying to point out. Let's look at those verses for just a moment. First of all, uh, Timothy, uh, look at John 17, verse 9. John 17, verse 9 says, I pray for them. I pray not for the world, but for them which thou hast given me, for they are mine. Okay, that would be... They elect. are thine. Yes, Sorry. you know, he's not praying for the world, he's praying for who? That would be his elect. So clearly, uh, they are uh, elect out of the world, no question about that. If you look at Ephesians 5.25. Ephesians 5.25 says... Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. So he gave himself for the church. Should I say, say now, he didn't give himself for the world. So they use that as a basis that, again, is referring to the elect. And then if you look at 1 Timothy 4.10. 1 Timothy chapter 4 and verse number 10. For therefore we both labor and suffer reproach, because we trust in the living God, who is the Savior of all men, especially of those that believe. See, they say that, you know, that uh, in a very special way, the elect are the ones the chosen. So there's no question he died for the elect. But again, when you come to the other verse of Scripture, it is very, very clear that Christ died for the world. For example, look at John one twenty nine. John 1 and verse 29 says, The next day John seeth Jesus coming unto him and saith, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. So it's not the sin of the elect, no. This one dies to take away the sins of the whole world. So he dies for the whole world. He doesn't die for just the elect. Then look at First Timothy. Um, sorry, look at First Timothy two six. First Timothy chapter two and verse number six. Who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. Again, notice he's not, it's not limited now for all. He gave himself a ransom for all, not just for some. There's a part where we read in uh, Matthew and Mark, he uh, gave himself a ransom for many. You remember that passage? That we, yes. Yeah, but yep. now it's for all. Okay. And then look at uh, Titus 2.11. Titus 2 and verse number 11 says... For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men. Again, it's not limited to the elect, it's appeared to all men. And then first Peter three nine. First Peter Second Peter three nine, sorry. Second Peter chapter three and verse number nine. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long suffering to usward. Not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. How can a statement like that be read and believe that a person doesn't have the right or the opportunity for repentance? God is not willing that any should perish, but that all, he wants all to come to repentance. It's hard for me to conceive of God wanting and willing to save me, but yet he blocks me. 
That makes absolutely no sense to me, quite frankly. It's like I tell you, the, uh, I'm going to give you the pen, but I know I'm not going to give you the pen, but I'm still taunting you with the pen. Come and get it, come and get it. And I'm taunting you even though I know you can't get the pen. To my mind, that, is, uh, that seems to be out of um, character. With, with God, uh, you know, I don't, I, I can't conceive of God mocking men, offering salvation. And then look at Hebrews chapter 2, verse 9. Hebrews chapter 2 and verse number 9 says, But we, but we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, should taste death for every man. Now, notice, taste death for not just the elect, but for every man. Clearly, the sacrifice of Christ was, uh, his death was not just about the elect. His death was for the entire world. He died for the entire world. And then one last one, First John 2.2. 2. 1 John 2.2. 2. 2, 2. And he is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only but for the sins of the whole world. I don't think there can be any clearer statement than that. So when we ask the question, what's the extent of Christ's death? Uh, It is very clear that he died for the whole world, but those who put their faith and trust in him are the subset of the world. It was not limited only to those who, who believe. Uh, the reason I think people come up with this, they think that maybe Christ, the blood was wasted. If he shed his blood and it didn't save the whole world, someone was wasted. But that's not what the Bible is teaching. He died for the whole world. But those who believe are the ones that are going to be saved. But So that tells you that salvation is made available to all people. John 3.16 uh, do we take that out of the Bible? If we're preaching, oh, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten, that who, whosoever. If, are we going to take whosoever out of the Bible now when we're you preaching? Better not. And I will say this, I think people who are Calvinistic are very dishonest when they're preaching and telling people uh, to come and you could come, etc., uh, etc. Et I think in a, in a very subtle way, they, in the back of their minds, uh, cannot make that broad statement without uh, in some way we're saying to themselves but I know that uh, the people who can't get saved so I think it's a hesitancy in being bold and giving invitations Um, but yet they preach as though they believe that Christ died for the whole world but yet their theology you, you confront them he died for the elect there seems to be a contradiction between what they believe and what they actually practice we have a whatsapp question or a question that has been coming from a listener is Pastor, is there such a thing as a generation curse? And if so, what is it and who has it? Well, I, I think if you read the uh, scriptures, I think there is some warrant for that. Um, it talks about in the, in the book of Exodus that if the people went into idolatry and worship other gods, uh, God would visit iniquity upon the fathers, upon the children, on the third and fourth generation. I think people who have dealt with the occult and be heavily involved in uh, exorcism in terms of dealing with people who are demon-possessed, they will tell you quite frankly that it runs in families. There's something called transference. Uh, If you're dealing with a person, I'm currently dealing with a situation uh, quite similar. If you're dealing with a person who has been involved or the family had been involved in a cult, like they were dealing in witchcraft or black magic, uh, et cetera, et cetera. It's very likely that that continues within that family because those people who are involved in that, 
uh, when it comes to the hour of their death, they are so fearful uh, that if they don't transfer whatever power they have been given to their children, some children before they were born, uh, hands are laid on the kids and it's transferred. That's why you have a lot like in voodooism and so on and so forth. You find it runs within families. Uh, and, and people who are listening to me right now who know people who are involved in, in witchcraft and black magic, you'll know that it runs in the family. It goes from one generation to the other. Uh, and that's what I believe happens. There's a curse there. The other thing I've, I've discovered too, Nathan, is that in many cases, people who are involved in like alcoholism it, like it runs in the family. Uh, I don't know if because of genetics the genes become weaker. Uh, I, I think it's more a behavioral thing that you learn and you learn by example. Again, I see that as a curse passing down the fa- in, the, in the family. I stopped that in my family uh, as far as I'm concerned because my dad was a, a very heavy drinker and a very heavy smoker. Mm. Uh, he died when he was only 56. And I'll say to anybody who's listening to me right now, if you're a smoker and a drinker, mark it down. You can cut 15 years off your life. I don't care who you are. Uh, very rare exceptions, but you can mark 15 years off your life. But I saw what that did to my dad. And um, I could never smoke. I could never drink. I saw exactly what it did to him. When he was in his 40s, I remember he coming to me one day and said, Dave, uh, I don't know much longer I've got. I didn't understand that he had sclerosis of the liver when he was in his 40s. <laughs> I mean, it was that bad, right? Uh, I could tell you other things about, about, about him, but I never really understood him. I never really understood the depth of the problem. But seeing how it has ruined his life and how it's affected the family has given me a, a distaste. However, I have family members who have the same weakness, brothers, sisters who have the same weakness. And I think it somehow it has gone from him into them. I am not too sure if it's the example, whatever it is, but it seemed to uh, continue within the family line. Uh, take another matter. Maybe you find that families who are very immoral. You find that a mother who is very immoral. You find a daughter is immoral. Mm. You find a father who is immoral. The son is immoral. Again, I think it's modeling, but the curse passes down. Uh, is there hope for breaking it? Of course. The hope is always in Christ. No question about that. The power of Christ can break the stronghold of any bondage that families find themselves in. Whether you said any. 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 Because whether you're dealing with people who are heavy into demonism or heavy into witchcraft, when you have... I, I'm told, by the way, that when uh, people came out of paganism in the first century world, there was so much witchcraft and so much um, uh, occultism that the moment you got saved, you had to pray a prayer of renunciation before you accepted to the church. So you had to renounce your involvement in satanic activities and renounce that before they would accept you. It was, I mean, remember in paganism, it was the gods. It was the spirits, basically. And uh, in the first century world and, and so on and so forth, when people came into Christianity, they had to make those renunciations. It was Should so common. we do something similar in today's day and age? I would say it depends. Well, look, Christianity been around for 2,000 years and because of that the western world has not really been captivated so much with a lot of demonism you don't find people involved in that you find that certain countries that they didn't have a strong Christian witness uh, like uh, uh, Haiti um, South American countries you find that it's very very common there if you're ministering in those countries and people get converted certainly if I was in Haiti or I was in South America that there's another form of witchcraft I forgot the name to call it uh, I would want to know were your family involved in this were you involved in it were you ever taken to uh, 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 but by the way uh, in talking to people in Antigua 
it's not as uncommon as I would th- I thought at first, but there are people who can tell that they were taken to this person who did something, they give them something to drink or mm. or whatever it is, or they were given a uh, a little um, uh, amulet that they would carry or something in the chain, whatever it is. So it's not as uncommon as I thought. When I was living in a certain uh, village here in Antigua, um, and I would pass a certain road, uh, people would tell me that that family practices witchcraft. So it's, it's not as uncommon. In a case when you know that has happened, there needs to be a prayer of renunciation because unless you renounce these things, you have a, the, the hold is there. The other thing I would say, uh, if you've been reading books on the occult, or reading books on witchcraft and stuff like that, and you've actually started to practice yourself, maybe your family, you're doing it. Again, all that has to be renounced. We see that in the book of Acts, when Paul went to Ephesus, and those people who were uh, doing witchcraft and doing the occult, they took all their occult books and burned them. I think the value was like $50,000, something yeah. like that was there. But again, that's the whole concept. You've got to get rid of these things. If you've got an image in your house that you were using in that process, that needs to be burnt and, and got rid of. Uh, you've got to clear the whole thing of that if you're going to have a clean break. Uh, you don't want to have that 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 transference and that, that, that association. Thank you to the individual who sent in that question. Pastor, you were referencing, uh, you've got two schools of thought. You've got Calvinist, and the other was the Arminian. Arminian? Arminian. Do you have to be all in one? Is it a spectrum, or is it... Two extremes. As far as I'm concerned, I have aspects of Calvinism. I have aspects of Arminianism. Okay. For example, I know God is sovereign. I don't mm-hmm. dispute that. I know that Christ died for elect. I don't dispute that myself. But I believe that God in his sovereignty has decided to deal with man on the basis of his grace. And the basis of salvation in his sovereignty is beliefs. So if you want to decrease, uh, I believe that God decreed that he would save all those who believe. Now, again, I can't prove it, but to my mind, it makes no sense you're offering uh, um, an invitation to people when you know that they can't respond. That is mocking me, Nathan. That is, you know, I just can't conceive of God deceiving humankind. And that's why I think that if man is a moral being and he's going to be held accountable, he must have a choice. If I don't have a choice, you cannot hold me accountable for anything I've done. So I have, I'm at ease with understanding God's sovereignty, understanding God's justice, but also balancing that with God's love and His mercy. And I can see God decreeing in eternity, I will create man, we allow man to fall, and um, I will save man. And the basis on which I save man is the belief in my Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. I have no problem understanding that whatsoever. I do have a problem that you are going to create me you're going to allow me to fall. But before you allow me to fall, you've already decided that I am going to hell and you're going to heaven. I have a problem with that. It's a moral problem I have. And that is where I say I'm I'm partly Arminian and partly Calvinist. And remember, these are man-made theories. Calvin came up with his theory when he's only 27. How many people you know are mature theologically at 27, Mm -hmm. right? So people need to understand that and balance that. So I think it's a matter of my overall view is what I see the Bible as, as, as teaching. For example, 
can I say whosoever? I can only say whosoever if I believe that Christ died for everybody and everybody has a chance. Otherwise, I'm mocking you when I tell you whosoever, when in the back of my mind, I know there's no whosoever. Yeah. I can't be a minister of integrity and hold to that position. You're listening to That's Truth on the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. It is a live, interactive call-in program. Time across the Eastern Caribbean on this Tuesday evening is 8.51. We've got just a few minutes left in this episode, tonight's episode. You can WhatsApp or text your question to 268-782-1454. Pastor, as we are wrapping up this topic or wrapping up this particular episode, if Christ died for all, and I think we're in agreement with that based on looking at Scripture, and that's the basis of this program, why are not all saved? Well, again, there's no question that Christ died for the world and Christ died uh, to offer salvation to humankind and to whosoever. But again, salvation is conditioned on two things. Remember that. Salvation is conditioned, first of all, on repentance and it's conditioned on exercising your faith and trust in Christ. Those are the conditions of salvation. So even though God makes salvation available to all men, if they're not prepared to meet those conditions, where a man is saying, I'm not willing to repent of my sins, uh, well, how is he going to get saved, right? And what stops him from getting saved? Because he's adamant he doesn't want to repent. But if the sin problem, if Christ has solved the sin problem, but you don't want to accept the, 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 the provision God has made. I remember some years ago, I can't remember where I read it, but there was a person in the States who was convicted of murder. And the governor offered him a pardon. And you know what he did? He rejected the pardon. Mm. The government had no choice. I mean, he was actually pardoned, but he said, I don't want the pardon. And just they had to execute him. That is similar th- a similar e- example. God has offered you an amnesty. If you refuse that amnesty, God's justice has to be exercised and you have to be punished. So there has to be this matter of repentance, and repentance is a turn away from sin. Sorry. Pastor, we have Codrington on the line. Codrington, please go ahead very quickly with your question. Uh, my question is this. Um, good night. Good night, sir. Um, God knows everything, right? Yes. Why did he create man if he knows everything and man end up in sin? Well, I just explained, uh, I hope I did explain, that God took a risk with man because if God, God uh, part of God's um, man of God, God is a, a creator. God is a person who creates things, basically. And he created man and took a risk with man. That risk involved choice. Man did not have to sin. But anytime you give, create a person like God in God's image, there has to be free choice. So you either make man in God's image or you make him a robot. To give man dignity, he had to have choice. And that's where the element of risk was involved. But man did not have to sin. Man chose to sin. uh, But there's no final definitive answer to these kind of questions. There's still some nebulous areas that that would create issues for you and create issues for me. But all I can say to you that uh, we don't know everything. God hasn't told us everything. In eternity, we will have an opportunity to get those things clarified and, and get answers. Uh, and, uh, and of course, there are secrets that God uh, keeps to himself. The Bible says, uh, 
things belong to the Lord, but those things that are, uh, belong to the Lord are kept by Him. Basically, I forgot the exact quotation of that verse. But it, it indicates that there's something that are secrets that God keeps to himself, and God reveals certain things to us. But he doesn't give us a full, detailed explanation behind uh, his creation. We don't want, know one thing, that all creation was created for his glory. So when he made man, it was for man to glorify himself, just like the angels were made to glorify himself, glorify God. But even those angels that were made to glorify God, we still find that Satan, who was made perfect because of pride, was able to lead away one-third of those angelic beings to fall with him. This is all part of the mystery of, 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 of every, uh, about the, the absolute mystery of things in, 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 uh, as far as the Bible is concerned. The Bible gives us enough for us to understand why we're in the condition we are in. And if we want to blame God for creating the condition, God said, oh, great, I can get you out of that condition. Here, Here's my solution. So if you want to blame him for allowing it to happen, give him the credit to, that he has solved the problem when he sent his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and make salvation available to us. Okay. Reasonable. Sounds reasonable, right? If you blame him for creating the problem, give him the credit for solving the problem. I always give him the prisoner, but sometimes, you know, I have to ask some questions, you know. Nothing wrong in asking questions, uh, man. You've got to ask questions. All of us ask questions. Uh, by the way, sometimes you're going to have doubts. John the Baptist had doubts. Many great men have had doubts. But again, the way to answer doubt is to go back to faith. Go back to Scripture. Study the Scripture. Let the Scripture be the means of generating faith. So then faith comes up by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. That's how you get faith. As you get into the Word, your faith, your muscle of faith is developed as the Word strengthens your faith. Codrington, thank you very much for your call tonight. We appreciate it. As we wrap up this episode, Pastor, I have a comment that's come in from a listener in relation to your discussion about generational curse. Amen, Pastor Murphy. I agree with you 100%. The power of God can break any stronghold in anyone's life. My son is a heavy weed smoker. He drinks occasionally, and he's only 24. He curses and swears on a whim. He has a bad, bad temper. His father portrayed all of these things in his life, so I guess he took after his father. I would say to you that we're hoping to be able to help you in the future with your son. Uh, i got a few minutes. Am I saying this, Nathan? Yeah. yeah. Look, our church, uh, for the last five years, we've been trying to get a drug rehab center started here in Antigua. We'll be offering a gratis service to the public of Antigua. Uh, fortunately for us, the government has already decided to lease five acres of land to us. And we are hoping, uh, we're hoping that this year uh, we will be able to do something to start this ministry. But we're hoping to take young men uh, who are deeply into drugs and uh, habituated to drugs, and we're hoping to start to work on their minds and uh, try to bring them to faith and trust in Christ. And we are going to also make sure that they acquire a skill when they, before they come out of the drug program. We'll tell you more about that, but you pray about it, pray for us as we contemplate making that venture. But I think it's really something needed, and uh, we've had some problems. I can't share with you the problems we've had in trying to get that going, but it's not the government problem. It's been our problem in terms of our incorporation, et cetera, et cetera. But we're hoping very, very soon to be able to offer the Antigua Public a gratis service of uh, people who are addicted in any form, and we'll try to minister to them. And um, so I hope that we're able to help your son if he is has not been able to, to break the habit that we can be part of the solution to your son's problem. 
Pastor, in the last 40 seconds, um, what is what does it mean to be a believer? What does it mean to be a Christian? Well, the Bible itself defines what it is to be a believer. A believer is a person who puts their faith and trust in Christ, but who have repented of their sins and accepted Jesus Christ as Savior. Uh, John chapter 3 talks about this whole matter of being born again, born into God's family as a result of putting the faith. It's interesting in John chapter 3, if you read the chapter, and you further to going on to the same chapter, dealing with syndicate, he said, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believeth in him. And he's teaching Nicodemus, just like in the serpent in the Old Testament was put on a pole, and when people looked, they were healed. He's saying that Jesus Christ will be put on the cross, and when you put your faith and trust in what he's done, on the cross, they would also be healed. If I feel the Holy Spirit convicting me that I should become a Christian, what is that like? What what would it? Well, generally speaking, it's an uneasiness sense within you. Sometimes it's fear of death. Uh, sometimes it's a tremendous guilt as you look back. Things that never used to bother you, uh, you feel that if you were to die, you're going to go more further than six feet. And uh, things begin to happen in your life. And that's an indication God's at work in your life. Thank you for joining us for today's program. We pray that the Holy Spirit uses the truths shared from God's Word to strengthen your faith. Now you've heard it. That's truth. Thanks for listening. Remember, you can hear more answers to life's questions on That's Truth, Tuesday at 7.30 p.m. on the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. If you're in Antigua, you can listen at 92.3 MHz FM. If you're in the Caribbean, you can listen at 1160 kHz AM or listen online at www.radiolighthouse.org from anywhere in the world or you can subscribe to this podcast. Looking forward to having you join us next time.